Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We're presented, as always, by DraftKings, produced by Brian Neal, music producer Sam Brandt. I want to get to the business of baseball this podcast. We are in a lockout. Major League Baseball has locked out its labor force. There are no transactions. No players can go to facilities. I know it's offseason. I know people aren't paying attention to baseball. But from a business perspective, this is big, where we have a labor work stoppage, even though it's off-season, as we try to get a new CBA. Now, I, I have some expertise in the business of baseball. I wanted to go to the best, though. I went to Andrew Zimbalist, who is the economic professor from Smith College that has written, as he did this morning in Sportico, for so many years on the business of baseball and the economics of baseball. He's the perfect guest for this subject and I'll have him on the program in just a minute. First, I want to rant about something. It's the Antonio Brown fake vaccination card. That's right. It was proven correct. Three weeks ago, we heard from an unpaid chef, former chef of Antonio Brown, who didn't get his bill paid. He ratted out Brown. It was kind of a quiet story. No one really, the Bucks denied it. No one said anything. And of course, now we know he did use a fake vaccination card. It was used and he got a three-game suspension from the NFL. A couple things to note here. First, hell have no fury like an unpaid chef. Brown is known for not paying vendors, not paying trainers, not paying agents, not paying lawyers, and in this case, not paying chefs. And we, which is concerning, would never know about this but for the chef who got stiffed by Antonio Brown. Listen, people don't change. This is behavior from Brown that is not surprising. He has stiffed people, as we just talked about. He's been allegations of sexual assault. He has left people in his wake so many different times. He has cut corners in so many different ways. No surprise here that he did so with the vaccination card. My sense is the NFL and NFLPA were talking about this, and the NFLPA representing Brown advised him to do this. My sense, and Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay newspaper that covered this kind of affirmed it, was that the NFL was going to give a much longer suspension, perhaps through the season even more, when Brown agreed, hey, give me three games and I won't appeal through the NFLPA. They did that deal. It's a negotiated settlement. And that's where we are with Brown. Should the Tampa Bay Bucks cut him? Well, if I were the Bucks, I would have never signed him because you know what you're getting there. And we know what's happened with three teams in six months moved on, Steelers, Raiders, and Patriots from Antonio Brown. In fact, the Steelers moved on to take a $21 million cap charge and two mid-round draft picks because they couldn't live with them, you know, because they were better off living without Brown. So again, I'm a little harsh on Antonio Brown, but I've seen this behavior for so long. It doesn't surprise me. And it's something where, yeah, greater talent equals greater tolerance, but I'm not sure any kind of talent is worth the tolerance required for Brown. That's just my thought on Antonio Brown, fake vaccination cards. And my final point is big picture, not a great look for either the Bucks, who supposedly looked at these cards, or the NFL. And it's not going to dampen any of the popularity of the NFL. But even back to Aaron Rodgers, all this stuff is not a great look, which tells me COVID protocols in 2021, as compared to 2020, are at best pretty lax and at worst kind of cursory and selective only when someone points it out. So that's where we are. All right. Before I get to our special guest, here's a word from Cuts Clothing. I wear it all the time. It's 
the most reimagined work clothes you could get. It elevates the classic t-shirt, something you can wear at any occasion. Athletes wear it, entrepreneurs, recording artists, they're all wearing what GQ magazine now calls the only shirt worth wearing. So it's the style is kind of a minimalist design. It's professional enough for the office. It's comfortable enough for night out. Versatility, style, you can look good for any occasion. The holidays are busy. Wear the polos, the bomber jackets, joggers, make it easier to year, any occasion year-round, one less thing to think about. So Cuts has your holiday shopping covered with a ton of new products, special site exclusives every day in December. And we're in December now. Get 15% off site-wide. Cutsclothing.com slash BOS, that business of sports. Cutsclothing.com BOS to get 15% off. Plus daily, can't miss deals. The business of baseball is very much in the news now with a labor situation, labor pains in baseball, nothing new to the sport, but it's new for a long time. It hasn't happened this way. We're in the middle of a lockout. We're not sure at the start of a lockout just happened last week. I have some insights on it, but I wanted to bring on an expert, uh, Andrew Zimbalist, the Robert Woods economics professor at Smith College. has long been a voice on this issue in baseball and someone I respect very much. I saw writing that he had this morning on Sportico and I wanted to bring him in and here he is. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Andrew. Thanks. Andrew, how surprised are you that baseball locked out its players last week or no surprise at all? Well, you know, there has been quite a bit of incendiary rhetoric coming from Tony Clark and um, his his chief negotiator, Bruce, Bruce Meyer. Uh, I think going back at least to 2019, um, when they were confronting, or at the beginning of 2020, uh, they were confronting the pandemic, and it was clear they weren't going to be able to start spring training on time, and they wouldn't be able to start the season on time, so they had to negotiate a reduction in number of games and a pro rata reduction in the pay. And some acrimony surfaced during that time period. And the players have, over the last several years, been complaining about the, what they call manipulation of service time. Because if you've uh, served in in Major League Baseball on the Major League team on the active roster for a little bit over two years, you become eligible for salary arbitration. And then if you've served for six years, you become eligible for free agency. And the players began to notice a pattern, at least they thought they noticed a pattern, whereby up-and-coming, very strong players would be held down in the minor leagues for a few extra days or a few extra weeks, so that at the end of the season, they wouldn't qualify for either salary arbitration or free agency. Uh, and that meant that their, their ability to negotiate their salary for the, far, for the following season would be reduced. So the players have been sniping a little bit about this and grousing a little bit. Uh, what's also true over the last uh, two or three collective bargaining agreements, they have introduced higher taxes on, on high team payrolls and they've introduced some additional revenue sharing. And those things tend to retard or hold back higher, higher player salaries. And the players, the players' association or the union believes that it's it's the higher player salaries that kind of drive drive the whole system. Um, they 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 push the ratchet up, and everybody goes up with them. Uh, so there have been some grievances that have accumulated. And as I say, in the last two years, Bruce Meyer and Tony Clark have been speaking more militantly than in the past. 
so I all, all of that said, the answer to your question is no, I'm not terribly surprised. Um, and I'm very hopeful, as I said in my article this morning, I'm hopeful that uh, the, the substance of this matter is, is sufficiently under control that they should be very easily able to find uh, a midpoint and, and have a successful collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, and let's talk about the actual nature of what just happened, because we've covered this, or at least I have many times with football over the years, where a lockout's been in place, in my view, not to have missed games, but really to gain some leverage in collective bargaining, because it's easier, or the let's put it this way and see if you agree, that the owners have an ability to negotiate more aggressively when there are not transactions going on as opposed to when they are. And we'll talk about what happened right before the lockout in terms of owner spending. But if you your view on the actual taking the step of locking out the players. Yeah, you know, this is a dance that they do with each other. As you point out, it's happened in all of the sports. Um, and I, I think that Part, part of it is a, a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. It's, it's sort of like uh, the, the owners are saying to the players, you know, we, we've made, at least from their perspective, they've made good offers, reasonable offers, and, and the players have stuck to their original demand of bringing about free agency after five years instead of six years and some other demands. And they don't, they don't like the way the players have been negotiating. And so their knee-jerk reaction is, um, you know, we're not going to take this lightly. We're going to show you that we have some power and influence. And by by announcing the lockout, Manfred basically called off all of the offseason negotiations. So there were a lot of deals that were signed in the two weeks just before the expiration of the old agreement. And uh, it, it got it got a lot of players excited, right? Gee, if I play next season, I'm going to get $30 million or whatever the case might be. And now you have all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of players who are more anxious for there not to be a lockout, who are more anxious for the season to start. And of course, their agents are going to get whatever, four or five percent of their salaries. And now they're more anxious not to get the season locked out. Um, so what what the, what the owners are doing here is, is saying, look, we, we've got some weapons. You better cooperate with us. You better talk to us. And in fact, the, the owners do probably derive a little bit of, of additional leverage um, for the next two months, more or less. If this goes on into spring training and and the regular season games are threatened, then probably the players will get a little bit more leverage. So there's a whole timing game here. Who gets more leverage depending on when the work stoppage is? But I, I still think that, uh, you know, this, this is just a collective bargaining dance. Each side is looking for a little bit of an advantage. At the end of the day, it strikes me that, that the system has functioned pretty well. Um, and and not, neither side wants to do damage to the sport by by having a prolonged workout. Now, baseball is a fairly fragile situation economically. Other leagues are as well, but probably not as much so as baseball. And baseball can't really well afford to to tinker with the fans' loyalty again the way they they were able to in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. You mentioned the spending before, as I did earlier as well. The Mets with Scherzer at $43 million a year, a 37-year-old pitcher, and of course, a quarter of a billion dollars, $325 million for Corey Seager in Texas and other spending as well. I guess the public reaction is, how can we take you, baseball owners, baseball management, Commissioner Manfred, seriously about an economic reset 
when this is what's happening. And but for the lockout, it seemed like it would have continued to happen. In fact, there were deals that didn't get the I's, cro- I's dotted and T's crossed that were ready to go, it seems, even before the lockout. Yeah. I, you can ask that question both ways. I mean, on the yeah. one hand, Manfred, Manfred points to those very high salaries. Uh, and there, by the way, there's a rec- this is a record amount of off-season signings and extensions. And Manfred points to that and he says, well, look, this system isn't broken. We're on a tr- we're on track now to have three point six three million dollars of offseason billion dollars, excuse me, billion dollars of offseason signings uh, that that ba- beats the previous record by a billion dollars of any other offseason. Uh, so ev- even though the player share and total revenue has dipped slightly at, at the rate we're going next year, the, the player share next year will be probably a good deal higher than it's been in, in the last several years. Um, and of course, they say also, as I point out in my article, that uh, their share over the last five years over this collective bargaining agreement that just expired was 49.3 percent, which is higher than in football. It's higher than in hockey. It's higher than in, in, in MLS. And probably if when you adjust for the, the different way they define revenue, it's probably also higher than the NBA. And that's without counting minor league salaries. Minor league salaries in, in baseball have been about 7 percent. This is signing, by the way, signing signing bonuses and salaries paid to minor league players is what I'm talking about. That's been 7.1% over the last five years. Uh, and when you add that in as part of the player costs that the major league owners experience, now you're up to 56, 56.3 or 4% hmm. of total revenue, which is way above what it is in the other leagues. Uh, so that's, that's the perspective from Manfred. And uh, I, I think, if anything, he looks, he looks at this level of signings and says, Number one, to the players, you don't have anything to complain about. You know, Sal, in Major League Baseball, unlike in the other sports, there's no salary cap. And because of that, depending on certain peculiarities of each each offseason, who who is becoming a free agent? What what share of the players are free agent? Who's becoming eligible for salary arbitration? And what share of players is that? What's happening in the economy? How did we do last year in terms of attendance? Is there, and did we just sign a new television contract? All of those things will affect the owner's behavior vis-a-vis si- signing players in the offseason. So without a salary cap, what you see in baseball is ups and downs in the player share. Uh, and Manfred say, well, what we've seen so far this offseason suggests that that player share is going to bounce right up again, even though we're already higher than, than the other leagues. Uh, so that's why Manfred's position going into the negotiations was, look, we need some more protection guys. Um, and and they also, of course, point to the very uncertain future of, of television revenues and streaming revenues, because the whole the whole industrial structure of of that uh, industry has been shifting very rapidly and consumer preferences have been shifting rapidly and youth preferences have been shifting very rapidly. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the future. And I think it, it's probably that un, uncertainty more than anything else that's making each side feel like they, they've got to get there as quickly and they've got to protect themselves as quickly as possible. I mean, you mentioned just a little ago that Manfred's feeling like, well, what are you guys worried about? Look what happened. Look at this great offseason spending and the levels going up a billion dollars. So I guess that begs the question, does Manfred and the owner's side basically want status quo? I know you, you'll, you'll talk about the playoff situation as well, but and the DH, but those, are little, those seem to be less economic issues 
Um, and then the other side of it is what do the players want? You tinted at it with uh, earlier chances to get to free agency. And to arbitration. They want to take, the, want to take the arbitration rule. The players, <laughs> this is the oldest issue that these guys have been squabbling about. Um, because basically the, 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 the fundamental structure, the framework for free agency has been in place since 1976. They're struggling over these little things. And one of the things is at which point of, of service time does a player get the arbitration rights? And arbitration rights basically enable a player to say, hey, I'm as good as player X, right. and I should, therefore I should get $12 million because player X gets $12 million. And what that tends to do is to bring the player up at to basically a market level of compensation, a, a free competitive market level, basically to that level. So they've been fighting over this. And at, at one point in time, back in the 1980s, players were eligible to get salary arbitration after two years. And then the owners won, won a, a battle uh, the next time, and it went up to three years. And ever since then, they've been trying to find some spot in between two and three years when you become eligible. And the last spot is 17%. 17% of the players who have had more than two years of service time, but less than three years, that 17% that has the most service time between two and three years, they get salary arbitration rights. That's what they're fighting over now. That's one of the big points they're fighting over. It's, 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 it's tinkering. It, however, yeah. it's something you could go. Manfred's got to sell his, his performance to the owners. Tony Clark's got to sell his performance to the players. And you want to take something back to your constituents and say, look, victory, look what I did for you. Yeah. Um, and if, if you take a step back and you look at it, it seems like it's really small marginal stuff that's going on. And basically it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, Tony, Tony Clark has to justify his existence uh, and the existence of, of his staff. And Manfred has, has similar issues. At the end of the day, they both have pretty good jobs. Uh, they get paid a lot of money. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it's challenging stuff. And they would like to keep their jobs. So they're, they're, they're battling to, to bring something home to their constituents. Sounds like the odds of a long work stoppage aren't really there. Overcoming those odds is, is the task for the business of baseball. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. I'm sure you get asked this as much as I do when you talk about baseball versus the other three major sports. But what is your most succinct and elevator speech answer to why Major League Baseball does not have a salary cap? I'm not sure how succinct I could be on this because it's, it's somewhat of a boss puzzle. I mean, Marv, Marvin Miller, who was the – the father of all of this right he's the one who developed collective bargaining in baseball marvin miller eschewed the salary cap he said look this these the players in baseball are entitled to the same free labor market rights as everybody else in the u.s economy this is a capitalist economy you get to sell your services to who wants to buy them at the price they want to buy them and you get to tell industries or companies to compete against each other if they both if all, more than one one company wants to hire you so Marvin Miller's point of view was uh, players deserve that. That's what they deserve, an open market. No no salary cap. Uh, and, and when Marvin Miller was first bargaining over this stuff, there were no salary caps in, in American sports, right? right. Uh, basketball didn't have theirs till 84, 85. And football 
Well, they had they had it in fits and starts in varying in varying forms, as you know. Um, but not till ninety. The modern version came in. Modern version came in after the McNeil case in nineteen ninety three, um, and hockey had didn't have a salary cap until this century. So uh, that's that's where that was the ideology that Marvin Miller created, and Don Fear picked up the cudgel and made the same arguments. Uh, and they they led they led the players to believe that a salary cap was an, as an was an anathema that you you don't do that in a capitalist society. If 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 uh, engineers don't have to deal with that, and if textile workers don't have to deal with that, why would, why should baseball players have to deal with that? So I think it's just part of an ingrained ideology. Uh, uh, most ideologies uh, don't make a lot of sense when you strip away all of the rhetoric. I think you could probably make the argument, nonetheless, that up until now, the absence of a salary cap in baseball has, on the margin, relatively speaking, benefited baseball players more than the players in the other sports leagues, which all have salary caps. Keep in mind, Andrew, I'm sure you've talked about this ad infinitum, is that a salary cap system is a system that not only has a cap, meaning the highest level of payroll that can be paid out, as a floor. Right. And the floor is typically 90 or 95 percent of the cap, which means that all this, all the payrolls are, are very compressed from one team to another. And so a team from New York doesn't have a big advantage over a team from Tampa Bay. That's hardly the case, hardly the case in baseball. Um, so there I think there are a lot of virtuous things about a salary cap. Uh, and and the, to me, the real issue is how you define the cap, what what percentage it should it should be and how you define the revenues. Uh, once you've done all that, uh, you you can create a very healthy economic league. But it's, as I say, it's been anathema in the ideology of the Players Association. And Tony Clark continues that. Now, you know, whether that will be true in the future or not, who knows? The owners have tried to, in baseball, they've tried to kind of do a backdoor, very, very liberal form of a salary cap by having a, a luxury tax level. Uh, and not increasing that level as revenues go up and not increasing it by as much as revenues go up. And in this last collective bargaining session, they they offered the players, they said, we'll, we'll uh, uh, give you a hundred million dollar revenue, excuse me, payroll floor. Uh, there, you know, a lot of teams from the smaller markets like Tampa, Tampa Bay that we just mentioned are considerably below a hundred million. And they said, we'll make everybody be at least a hundred million, but we would like we would like a luxury tax level to be at 180 million. That wouldn't be a salary cap. Teams could no. still go over a payroll of 180 million, but uh, they they would be significantly taxed on the amount of money they spent over that level. Well, that sounds so that's like not, you asked me for a succinct answer. I didn't fulfill no. your request at all, but that's that's my. I'm glad you explained the floor aspect. Everyone focuses on the ceiling, but no one focuses on the floor and. Yeah. With that Scherzer contract, there was some articles out there that Scherzer's $43 million is in line with four or five teams' total payroll. I know it's early, but going into the 2022 payroll. So it's interesting that Manfred and the owners have at least reportedly offered that floor of $100 million, which you would think would address the concerns of the low-spending teams. We don't worry about the high-spending teams, right? You, If you're a player, you worry about the low-spending teams. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting where that that proposal will end up. Yeah, they, they actually it, the um, the owners offered it to the players back in the, in the 1990s when Fear was the head of the Players mm. Association. And, and Fear's line was no. 
I don't, I don't want to have a floor because if I have a floor, it necessarily will lead to a cap. And we, we, and he reiterated the, the ideology, which is we, we don't think teams should have to spend a certain amount of money. We think the way it should work is a team should project how much a player is going to generate in revenue, their so-called marginal revenue product, and they should pay, pay wages up to that level. But if a team is hiring players and they have low marginal revenue products, we shouldn't make them pay more. Uh, he wanted a market, an open marketplace, and and the idea of a floor contradicted that. So they they rejected in the past, and I I suspect that they will reject it all over again. So again, a lockout, no transactions, uh, and I I'm trying to relate this to my knowledge of the football lockout when there were obviously the facilities were closed, players couldn't even get in to work out, uh, no negotiations. Can't even. I think there were maybe allowances made for players in rehab coming off serious injuries, but I'm not even sure about that. Um, there are no such allowances now in baseball. You can't you can't use club facilities and club personnel. That's how they've defined it. And is this one of these deadline spur action kind of negotiations? Are there meetings scheduled? Is there? Are we just saying? Are we just kind of all sitting back and saying, "Well, they'll figure it out in February, March, early March"? Well, I'm I'm sure that they'll meet uh, sometime uh, this week or next. Uh, both both sides want to have have an agreement here. They they needed a little cooling off period, I think. Uh, look, I I I think that um, you know there's some some pressures on the labor union right now. Uh, Tony Clark. Uh, as I said, he has a good job. He wants to be reelected. Um, the people who command the most votes are the big agents like Scott Boris, because he's got a stable. I don't know how many it is now, but it's probably yeah. 40 or 50 players. So when when Scott says something to Tony, uh, Tony listens because Scott will be able to bring along, you know, whatever it is, 40 or 50 votes uh, when there's a reelection uh, for, for the executive director of the union. Um, what I'm suggesting is that those large agents like Scott Boris are looking at some of the contracts that they've signed for their, for their players and saying, gee, that, that, that $43 million, I get 5% of that. Um, And it's, so it makes them think if, if we can't get this game back on the field, it's going to cost me a lot of money. Um, And I also think that there are, keep in mind that there are the Carlos Correa's out there who uh, didn't get his deal before the lockout was declared. Uh, all the other major shortstops got got their deals. Carlos Correa didn't. Um, he wants there to be an end to this lockout at, at least a couple of weeks before spring, spring training is scheduled to begin, because then he's got time to get teams to bid against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, so I think there are a lot of, lot of different uh, factors and forces that that people are weighing here. Um, there's another, as I mentioned earlier, an, another strategic uh, line of thinking says that the players need to, to extend this lockout and not make an agreement going into April, because if it goes into April, now it's starting to uh, pinch the money out of the players, right. out of the owner's pockets. Um, I, I'm not sure that that any any of these things individually are going to, you know, determ- determine the outcome. Um, but again, as I've said before, and as I wrote in my article, um, I, I don't think at the end of the day, any additional changes that they're going to make in the CBA is going to mean more than one percentage point to the player share. And the player share is always already quite healthy. So, yeah, they're going to kick and scream on both sides. 
Each side will make various accusations of the other side. That's kind of unproductive. Um, but uh, I, I believe that the differences aren't aren't so great that that they won't be able to uh, come to terms with each other. Yeah, your point about the agents is really interesting because covering football, the NFLPA kind of views agents as a kind of a necessary evil, and they don't take a lot of input from them, certainly during labor negotiations. And that leads me to sort of my last question and back to the why is baseball ownership or baseball labor so strong compared to other unions. I noted after the Scherzer contract, some comments from Scherzer about being part of the labor negotiations and being part of the labor discussions and advising young players on labor. Uh, it's just a theory, but do you think the gravitas of players that do get involved in baseball's labor situation means something? Because in football, it tends to be kind of down the line, uh, you know, meat and potatoes, offensive linemen. You don't get the superstars involved in bargaining. And in basketball, the opposite. You get LeBron James and Chris Paul. And I notice in baseball, stars like Scherzer involved in negotiations. Do you think that has, makes a difference? Well, first of all, I, I, you, you, it's hard to draw inferences from a sample of one or two. Yeah. Um, I, I work with the Basketball Players Association in during the 95-96 work stoppage. Excuse me, 97-98 work stoppage. Uh, and then again in the 05-06 period. And the, the, the folks in basketball who were elected to the union were those who were most articulate and intelligent. Um, they're the ones who the, the players would would pick. Uh, and I suspect that's what's happening with LeBron James. He's a great basketball player, but he's very smart and he's articulate. And he's dynamic. Um, it was true with Michael Jordan as well, by the way. Uh, he very I, I sat with him at the bargaining table many a time. Very articulate and forceful. Um, and I've worked with the baseball players union and I'd say it's the same thing. Now, it might, you know, it might be the case. I don't know sure as a, as, as a person. Um, so I, I, I can't say how smart he is or how smart I think he is. But my guess is that he's articulate and smart. And that's why he's he's representing uh, the players there that he was elected by his his previous team um, for those reasons and not because he's a great pitcher. Really appreciate this final question. What's your prediction here? Resolution sometime. <laughs> January, February, March. April. Well, I don't have you know I don't have a crystal crystal ball, and I yeah, my, my my um my ability to make predictions is probably no better than the average fan, except that I I think that I see uh, an avenue for reconciliation here. I I, I think that, I, and I have a great deal of respect both for both for Rob and and for Tony Clark. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, rationality will prevail and, and we'll have an agreement sometime before the end of January um, so that they'll they'll have time to to do some more uh, postseason signings um, or preseason signings at that point in time. Um, and and they'll have time to uh, prepare for for spring training. As you know, players, at least pitchers, tend to come in around uh, uh the beginning of beginning of February, mid first first two weeks of February, and then and then the players, position players come mid February. So I, I think they'll they'll find a way to make an agreement sometime towards the end of January, which will give them ample time to do all of the other preparations.
Andrew Zimbalist, Robert A. Woods, Professor of Economics at Smith College, baseball expert. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed diving into the business of baseball, business that's shut down right now. Two Andrews talking to you, Andrew Brandt, Andrew Zimbalist. Fascinating discussion, at least from my end, on really diving down what are the deep issues in this bargaining. Seems like not a lot to get done to get baseball back. I think we're all pretty confident this lockout is a temporary thing. We'll be back to baseball soon. And you'll be back to getting your car right at AutoZone. You can troubleshoot so many things. Check your engine light, ABS light, service interval light. It's the free fix finder. It gives you solutions for all your lights backed by verified technicians. It'll send you full results in a detailed fix finder report straight to your email. You'll have all the information you need to take on the fix. Every bit of help you can from a repair shop, AutoZone will even refer you to a nearby shop you can trust. Simply the most complete free warning light report backed by technic verified technicians and the fixes they have. You can only find it at AutoZone, so next time your dashboard lights go pay you a visit, just get in the zone, AutoZone. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, Instagram, Andrew Brandt 2. Clubhouse, ADB719. Thanks to my producer, Brian Neal, my music producer, the music you hear from my son, Sam Brandt. Apple Podcast rankings and comments, always appreciate it. Have a great week, and we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.